It's like Monopoly. Hello, hello there. Testing. There we go. It's like Monopoly. There's no any, there's no clean cut end in it. You just keep going on. You know that, that in uh, Lake County, Indiana, they've been playing the same game of Monopoly there since the fall of 1932 and it hasn't finished yet. Generation after generation sit down and take the, take the dice in hand. And, uh, there's been over 400 people on Park Avenue in that, uh, in that time and they still haven't decided the game. So, uh, you know, you pick it up and you lay it down. What difference does it make? Uh, some guys play Monolope. Other guys uh, pick their teeth. And it's just, <laughs> it's Friday. Uh, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Am I going this Friday? Would you please, uh, every every year, just before Christmas, just about this time, every year, we must do this, and I'm about to do it. So would you please set up my rotten, crummy, low-down, my low-down, sneaky music? That's it. The, the blues. That's it. All right. You got it set in there? All right. Already in there? <laughs> Did you read that before we before we do our our we our yearly ritual? May I read this little piece here? It's uh, New Haven, and I, I guess it's Connecticut, New Haven. Police today sought the mechanically minded ten and eleven year olds who managed to start a bulldozer and send it rumbling down a residential street with no one at the controls. An out of control bulldozer. <laughs> well, I'll never forget I dated one. The dozen. The bulldozer, rather, meandered from curb to curb after leaving the site of a new school. It climbed over a Cadillac convertible. It was parked. Just went right over the top of it. Oh, boy. <laughs> Knocked down a half a dozen fire hydrants and finally stopped halfway into a variety store near the ribbon counter. The car's owner was standing on her porch when she saw the machine heading down the street. She ran to her car, tried to start it, but couldn't. And the bulldozer's getting closer and closer. What a great moment. She's in there, and the car won't start of all times. I know what she did. She flooded it. She told police she jumped just as the dozer began to climb up the rear deck of her car. <laughs> I'm sorry. you know. I'm, no, don't look so sad. So, so what, you know? She probably went in and called the insurance company the next instant. You know, bulldozer ran over my car. And I said, what? The bulldozer. I said, well, we'll take a look at the damages. Anyway, it says the, the, the bulldozer went... It went right up the rear deck, right over the top of the car, right over the motor, and kept right on going. It says the car was totally flat. The errant bulldozer stopped halfway into the variety store. A bystander managed to turn the machine off. You know, that, uh, how many of you have ever been present at, at, a, at a great moment when you really did see a machine run amok? I mean, genuinely run amok. What was that, that, that great short story? Was it Poe again? Who wrote the short story about the cannon that was loose on the ship's deck? Was that Poe? I don't think it was Poe. Now, I, I, there's some little voice inside of me that says, no, no, no. That's a famous story. It's about the cannon that was loose. And, and the ship was rolling, 
And as each roll of the ship, this cannon would roll over and crush guys, and it was, it was a tremendous thing. With back and forth, it was the, the the immense behemoth had gotten loose, and uh, it was totally the insensate, the in the inhuman, the inchoate power of some giant machine rolling. Who was that? Who wrote that story? It doesn't exactly sound like Poe. No, it was. I'm sorry, it was not Herman Woke. Now don't holler Woke. Somebody hollered, uh, <laughs> now stop it. It was not Herman Wilk. Now, uh, it was not Norman Mailer. Now, there was another, it was, a, it was a big cannon that kept rolling back and forth and it was killing. Now, oh, now, I, now I won't be able to do the show. Just terrible now. It's, I'm bugged with this thing. It's in my mind. Uh, and and then, then there was, of course, that story uh, has been rewritten many times because it's a, it's a basic fear that people have. Uh, just like, you know, when you read many different types of horror stories, they keep reappearing the same kind of horror story, the monster that comes out of the sea. We all have a fear of a monster coming out of a sea. How many times have you gone swimming in a lake, and you're swimming away, you know, and, and, and you're deep, in deep water, see? Victor Hugo, that's right. You're in deep water, and you have this, this sneaking suspicion. It's a crummy little lake. It's about two and a half feet around that there's going to be a monster come out of the dark weeds and grab you. That's a ba very basic fear. Uh, it was Victor Hugo. I, I think he mean yeah, that's the right guy. Now, that story has been rewritten many times. In fact, there, there was one time a story written like that about a piano, a big piano that had gotten loose in, in, uh, in some kind of a moving vehicle. I think it was a boat, too. But the original story had to do with a cannon. Well, now, the idea of a bulldozer rolling down the street, just crushing things and running right over the top of a Cadillac. Ironically, it would be a Cadillac. I think it's a neat bit of, of iron. That if, a, if a writer wrote it as a Cadillac with a bulldozer crushing, immediately I can see the daily worker picking this up as a symbol of the working man finally crushing the idle, the idle capitalistic classes, you know, <laughs> and so on and on and on. But it's a great symbolic story. Well, I remember one time I'm this kid. Uh, would you would you please bring me a little? Uh, I think a little. Uh, yes, I think that that quiet blues music. I'm a kid. See, I'm walking along through the, yeah, you know, just just feeling my oats. You know, walking around. I'm in a steel mill. See, and I'm spitting and hollering, and pretending like I'm a steel worker. You know, I got a pair of safety glasses up on the top of my hat. And I got the big corduroy hat with the earmuffs. I got the safety shoes on. Boy, I'm really with the scene, you know. I'm running in and out of the lakefront scales, and I'm running past the open hearth and around the blast furnace, and I'm digging it. I can hear the sound of the big machines. Bah, 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 bah. Once in a while, you know, there's nothing. I don't think there's any sound at all that is as terrifying as the sound of a Bessemer converter about to let go. Uh, the Bessemer converter, to popularize it, really, is uh, like a vast percolator coffee percolator, only it percolates steel, if you can imagine. And every couple of minutes, this thing percolates to the top. And this enormous, this gigantic, oh, it's, it's an unimaginably big Roman candle. It goes, <laughs> millions of sparks fly all the way to the clouds and down again and drift for miles around. And then, as it slowly tilts, you hear, that means look out get out of the way this big old monster is going to pour 16 million tons of molten steel right on the top of your size 6 and 7 8 head unless you move quick 
Well, I'm running around, you know, digging the scene. And I come around the corner of a big building. And right next to me is, uh, I believe it was the 14-inch merchant mill. Yeah, I'm, I'm recreating the scene, which is a big, high, tall, enormous black building that stretched for maybe a mile. And this building was the noisiest of all the buildings on the, on the whole mill. Uh, because it was, a, it was a mill where they carried great ingots and set them down and they rolled them. You've seen pictures in the movies of them rolling. Uh, you don't really hear the sound of them rolling when you watch it in movies. The sound is so, so immense, so deafening, so scary that you don't even consider it any longer after a while. It's like the sound of the sea with great, great uh, waves crashing against the rocks. And so the sound of a, of a 14 inch rolling mill in full tilt it's just unimaginable. It's beyond the scope of normal sound, so you don't even think of it as sound anymore. It becomes it becomes almost like a, a, an element skip, you know, like like lead and zinc and air and sand, you know, sound. And boom, boom, you hear it going. Well, I turned the corner by the number two AC shop, and right around the corner was a big warehouse, a big steel flatbed warehouse where they kept a lot of steel that was about to be shipped. And into this warehouse. There was, a, there was a long skein of a thousand railroad tracks that ran right into it. Railroad tracks, as a matter of fact, all over the steel mill, railroad tracks hold together a steel mill the way your skeleton holds together your body. Uh, it's even not quite as exact. What I would say, it's like perhaps your arteries and your veins. The railroad tracks just spread out all over like a great tree. And so I'm, uh, you get so you're, you're used to that, you know. You're just used to that. You run along. I run. <laughs> and I come around the 2AC, and I see a little dinky engine, one of these little switch engines that was pushed. Which, well, you, this was a constant sight in the mill. Always there was a little engine going. And he's switching and banging the, the, the cars back and forth. And I see a little dinky engine, and he's pushing a big iron flatbed freight car. This is a long freight car that's used to transport iron ingots. Very heavy kind of a flatbed car. And he's, it's got iron, uh, kind of uh, like iron sides all around it. You've seen these, uh, these cars that they put coal and everything in. But this one held steel, so it was pretty heavy and it's all the way around it. And there's a guy standing in it. And he's the switchman. And the engineer is pushing this car. See? He pushes it. And then he unswitches from it. He goes, oh, he stops. and He backs up. And now all by itself, the, the car that he was pushing is gliding along at about 30 miles an hour. Just quietly, you know how they glide into the freight yard there. He's, it's gliding along. And there's this man standing up in it. And he's got his hands on the wheel which operates the brakes on it. You've seen the big brake, the wheel sticking out. And I've just gone, da, 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 tia, da, tia, and I'm running along with my mail, and the machines are banging on all sides of me, and it's raining a little bit. And I see that freight car. It's going, you know, making the sounds when it goes over the ties. It's moving along about 30 miles an hour, and he makes the big turn, and he's now heading directly for the warehouse. And he's... Obviously, going to stop this thing. It's going chukum, 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 chukum. And the warehouse has an enormous steel door that must have been 25, 30, 40 feet high to allow big cranes to go into it. It's a big, heavy, steel folding door that goes on up into the ceiling when they want things to come in. This gigantic steel door. Chase them out. Come on. Out. 
I'm not kidding. So there's this gigantic steel door, and this thing is rolling right at it. And I'm watching this guy. And suddenly, he is frantically waving. He is jumping up and down, and I see the freight car is not going to stop. It ain't going to stop. And he's wildly, he turns this wheel, and he runs to the back of it. You know, there's another wheel sticking out the back. They have wheels on both ends. He turns the wheel, and I see it's not going to stop. It's going right at the steel door that must have been three inches thick. It was 20 feet wide. It was 40 feet high. He is clipping along at 30 miles an hour. He is rolling faster and faster and faster and faster. Oh, wow. No, 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 no. Not, not blues for that. Nothing, nothing, nothing. That. It's rolling faster and faster and faster. I'm standing there watching. And sure enough, boom! He hit that door. He hit that door going, I'd say, a good 30 miles, maybe 25 to 35 miles an hour. This, I don't know how much this freight car weighed, probably 35 tons. And that guy, I saw at the last instant, he looked up, he dove down on the floor, and he disappeared under the railing of the, of the, of the car. And it seemed like for 10 minutes afterwards, I heard, boom, boom, boom. In inside, in, in the building. You just heard these reverberating crashes one after the other, crash, crash, and then boom. There was a brief instant of silence. Just hung right like that. And then I heard shouts coming from inside the building. <laughs> you hear these guys yelling and hollering, thousands of them. And then you hear the sound of sirens going. Watched this whole scene, and I ran up to the I ran up to the building, and I could see just a little wisp of smoke and stuff coming out of it. I ran up to the building, and I could see where this 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 great car had had ran along the tracks of the shipping dock. It knocked over tractors. It knocked over piles of wooden stays. It knocked over salamanders. It knocked over control boards, and it had just made a great swath right into that building. And there wasn't a single person hurt. But they all stood around with that white look on their face. The cannon had gotten loose. The thing they were always afraid of. The piano had gotten loose. The thing they were always afraid of. That big bulldozer had gotten free, gotten loose on that street, and ran right over, right over the Cadillac. That giant, inchoate monster of evil. Which reminds me, this is WOR AM and FM New Yorkie. Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. Distinctive Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. Just Pop and Pour Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. No opener needed. Enjoy the light, full flavored goodness of Miller High Life. The premium beer millions more are asking for. Miller High Life always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Unequal, unquestioned, unchanging. Enjoy Miller High Life in our easier-to-open pop-and-pour cans. Just pop-and-pour Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. In pop and pour cans. 
Oh, wow. What's all this about, this commercial here? What is it? Uh, is it live? Live? Co- oh, boy, oh, boy. When you see Viva la Mia. What is it? Viva Maria? The marvelous motion picture. Now, I'm quoting here, everybody. Don't come around and say Shepard said it was a marvelous picture. I'm reading the copy here. It says, when you see Viva Maria, quote, the marvelous motion picture from United Artists starring Brigitte Mardot and Jean Marot, you'll be shouting all kinds of Viva, Viva. You'll shout Viva Fun and Viva Adventure, Viva La Sex, because this is fun all the way and adventure and whoopee all the way and love. Well, <laughs> there's Bardot and Moreau. Love cannot be far behind. You notice people constantly confuse sex with love. And you'll shout, Viva La Con Con. That's the wild dance they do. And you'll shout, Viva Boom Boom. Because that's when they're not dancing, they're shooting cannons and leading armies and all other kinds of incredible activities for two French femme fatales. But that's what makes Viva Maria such a fabulous entertainment. Uh, this, uh, you can't miss this one. Uh, see Brigitte Bardot in person uh, Saturday night, 8 p.m. at the Astor. Regular performances start Sunday at Astor and Palazzo Theatres. Viva la whoopee! Oh, wowie. No, I gave him there 60 seconds. Didn't I there? Okay. Now, what, uh, what else do we have? You got another whoopee in there? Hit it, Dad. Turn me loose. I'll play Let me laugh and make love. <laughs> I never can understand this spot. <laughs> Let me run through the world, flinging popcorn and pearl. I'll make spring at home. The guy that led the band must have had a very good agent. Hey, Ombre Blue is here. A new feeling, a new fragrance, a new perfume. By Cody. Perfume by Cody. Now spring is an all-year thing. What does she say at the end? It goes. All these cheesecloth microphones never work so good. Well, let's see. We have uh, Rover with us. Oh, before we go into the Rover scene, uh, <clears throat> Brack, uh, Christmas night. Now we have to make this announcement here. To prevent confusion, Christmas night, I will be on the air. That will be December 25th. But there will not be a broadcast from the limelight Christmas night. In other words, uh, the last show before Christmas will be tomorrow night. And I intend doing a wild Christmas whoopee. Huh? Huh? What was all that? Tuesday? What? Uh, <laughs> all right, all right. But the last Christmas show before Christmas will be tomorrow night uh, at the Limelight. And if you've been planning to come to the Limelight over Christmas, uh, you better make it tomorrow night. And uh, incidentally, uh, I I, uh, I must uh, remind you, uh, a lot of people have written to me. I don't know why they do this, but they, they constantly write here and ask me if I'll get them... Uh, uh, reservations for the limelight. I have nothing to do with that. I mean, that's my. I have enough trouble doing the show uh, without selling the tickets and making the hamburgers and making the coleslaw. In fact, one night a guy came up and complained that there wasn't enough ketchup on the tables, and he was very mad. He wanted me to do something about it. However, uh, uh, if you if you'd like to come down and see the show, uh, there's a, there's almost invariably uh, if you get down 
there's two or three or four or maybe a dozen sometimes cancellations and you can get in. And if you'd like to try for a reservation, sometimes people have already canceled. I don't know. It happens. Uh, you can give them a call at the Limelight. In fact, you can call them tonight. I don't know what their number is, but you can look it up. It's the Limelight. And uh, I, uh, I'm looking forward to this uh, because I, I enjoy doing a uh, Christmas show. Uh, I don't know why. It's just one of those things. Uh, I enjoy it very much. And uh, we'll be at the Limelight beginning 1030 uh, to midnight on this coming Saturday, this uh, tomorrow. I, I guess it's tomorrow. This is Friday, right? Okay. All right. Now, uh, we also have with us the Rover, a uh, great automobile, the Rover 2000. And uh, there isn't much I can say about it except that, uh, you know, it's a little embarrassing sometimes when, when you read actual quotes about the Rover 2000 out of various magazines that have uh, brought articles about it all over the world because it always sounds more embarrassing than what a copywriter can write. Uh, for example, the phrase, uh, is the world's best car uh, a, a, a $4,000 car? In other words, uh, uh, is this a car that's as great as the Bentley and the Rolls-Royce? No copywriter would do this, but it was done by a big magazine recently. It's a great car. It's the Rover 2000, and it's designed for... 1970-type travel. It's a fast, uh, Gran Turismo car for people who like good performance and who have learned what this means by driving good sports cars and who no longer want a pure sports machine. The Rover 2000. Now, we also have the electronic workshop with us. And uh, I, I uh, can only say that if you're planning to do anything in the way of electronics for this Christmas... I would suggest you consult with the electronic workshop because uh, not only uh, will they match the prices that anybody has on all the great uh, hi-fi equipment that's built around the world, uh, they'll be there after Christmas. And uh, furthermore, anybody who buys uh, stuff from them uh, will be treated not as a, as a uh, nameless, faceless customer, but as somebody who's bought a highly complex technical piece of gear that may need servicing and it may need uh, expert advice to use. This is the Electronic Workshop, 26 West A Street, in the village. They're open Saturday till 8, 9 o'clock. And if you're planning to send any hi-fi or a nice tuner or something to somebody for Christmas, especially take a look at their KLH stuff. Electronic Workshop. Okay, now let's get back to reality. <laughs> As opposed to... Hey, you know, uh, here, here, here is one of the sneakiest, uh, sneakiest Christmas poems that I know of. And since it's, uh, it's, it's winter time, you know, and it's all there, uh, that excitement, there's a wild, peculiar kind of excitement. I don't know how it affects people who live in tropic areas. I spent one Christmas in a, uh, in, in a tropical uh, situation. And Christmas in a tropical area is, is a, an extremely peculiar feeling. It really is, because somehow you associate Christmas, for some reason, I, why, I don't know. Uh, I, I would like to know the origin of that. It would be very interesting to know the origin of the association of wither, snow, ice, and so on with Christmas. You know that they even do this in tropical places? They, they'll have artificial snow that, that I saw, one of the sad things I saw in, in, in a tropical area during Christmas was a guy who had decorated his house. And the way he decorated his house was by getting this poly, uh, polyethylene kind of snow, you know, this fluffy polystyrene stuff, and it, it kind of comes in cans or something, and you can get it. It's like a big fluffy white cloud, 
And he had put this stuff on all the bushes in front of his house. And the bushes, of course, were things like mimosa. <laughs> there were things like uh, eucalyptus and stuff like uh, tropical uh, tropical uh, carnations, one thing or another. And he had put all over his little bushes, he had sprayed this white stuff so that it looked like it had snowed somehow in the in the middle of the of the Arctic. And he had a Santa Claus set up uh, with a sled. And of course, old Santa was sitting sitting in, the, sitting in this Courier and Ives type sled, and he had these little these little reindeers stretched out in front of him. And Santa was sitting on a bed of plastic snow, and he had plastic icicles attached to the eaves of the house and all that. And I thought, well, you know, that's a fascinating point, really. It, it was sad in one way, but funny in another. And I thought to myself, well, I wonder. Uh, at what point did the, tr did the did the ice and snow and the winter concept of Christmas begin to be a uh, a going thing? So that all over the world now it's even associated with winter. That's the point of my story. That it's not only associated here in the uh, middle United States. It's associated in in tropical places now with snow and with ice. And with uh, icicles and Santa Claus coming down the chimney blowing. You can see his breath and all that stuff. And uh, I, I'm just wondering about that. But uh, here, here is a is a thing which I have done for a long time, just before Christmas. Because it's a it's a very peculiar Christmas story, and uh, <clears throat> it uh, it's uh, in, in a nutty, uh, peculiar kind of uh, uh, half baked, uh, dramatic way. It makes a strange point about Christmas. Will you bring me in that little oh, one more one more uh, thing I must say before we, we we start the the reading here? It'll be blues is what I want. I want blues and I want antile. Okay, all set. Blues and antile. All right. No tiger rag tonight. Get that off. Get off the sad music. Clear the decks. Blues and antile. So that all the confusion back is all set back there now. All right now. Uh, this uh, this particular author is always famous for a piece which in many ways is not as effective as this piece. Um, and you'll know, immediately know who the author is when you hear three lines. You know you know how I always judge style? Uh, funny thing about that, that thing called style, reading style, writing style. Style is the unmistakable stamp of an individual. Uh, it's almost like a, a, a fingerprint that cannot be erased. Now, certain people have style that are not necessarily writers. Uh, for example, ball players have style. The way a man runs, just the way he stands, you know immediately. Uh, for example, Joe DiMaggio had style. The way DiMaggio just stood, there was something about the way he moved, the way he would hold his hand or his head. He had style. It couldn't be anybody else. You just you just look at at DiMaggio just sort of standing out there against the scoreboard. You know, it's DiMaggio. That's all. Whereas there are 55 other center fielders who may be better or not as good, but you don't you can't identify them. They're just a man out there. Uh, and some have it, and some have it. For example, Al Kaline does not have style. Great ball player, but you can't really recognize Kaline. You look out in the outfield, you don't know that it's Kaline out there. We almost anybody else. He, he doesn't have that thumbprint. He doesn't have that, that identifying aura, that thing around him. Now, in writers, it's quite the same. Now, uh, a man who has style has it. He may not even be a good writer, but he has style. And, and style, then, is, is the unmistakable thing which you always see in two or three lines of his work. 
Now, I can take a dozen writers that everybody applauds today and read a whole paragraph of them and not recognize who it is. They don't have style. Now, you can recognize Salinger. You read three lines of Salinger, one line of Salinger, and you know it's Salinger. He may not be saying anything. He may be good. Or he may, I'm not saying that he's good or not, but he has style. That's a fact. It is there. Style, and, and those who have style are always envied by those who don't have style. And, uh, and furthermore, uh, they're, they're quite often even hated by those who don't have style. Now, now, style is not necessarily imitating somebody. So a guy may imitate Salinger, but he always shows himself somewhere along the line. He doesn't, uh, a ball player who, say, uh, has looked at a lot of movies of Joe DiMaggio, he may do some things like DiMaggio. He may have the swing. He may, he may even work on, on throwing a ball like DiMaggio. But he somehow isn't quite DiMaggio. Uh, and so it is with guys who try to imitate another man's style. Here's a guy with style. You listen to three, three lines of him, and you know exactly who he is. Bring on that blues, man. There are strange things done in the midnight sun. By the men who moil for gold. <laughs> the Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights. But the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Labarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Now, Sam McGee was from Tennessee where the cotton blooms and blows. And why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. It was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell, though he'd often say in his homely way that he'd sooner live in hell. On Christmas Day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail. Talk of your cold. Through the parka's fold, it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close, then the lashes froze until sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun. But the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe, he turned to me and, Cap, says he, I'll cash in on this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of moan, Oh, it's this accursed cold. It's got right hold till I'm, I'm chilled clean through to the bone. Yet taint being dead. It's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. I'm afraid of the icy grave. So I want you to hear that, fair or foul, you'll cremate my last remains. Well, a pal's last thing is a... Last need is a thing to heed. So I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the streak of dawn. But God, he looked ghastly pale. He crouched on the sleigh. And he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. There wasn't a breath in that land of death. And I hurried, horror-driven, with a corpse half-hid that I couldn't, I couldn't get rid because of a promise given. It was lashed onto the sleigh. And it, and it seemed to say, you may tax your brain and your bronze, but you promise true, 
and it's up to you to cremate these last remains. Now, a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were numb in my heart, how I cursed that load in the long, long night by the lone firelight while the huskies round in a ring howled out their woes through the homeless snows. God, how I loathed that thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow. And on I went, though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low. The trail was bad, and I felt half mad, but I swore I would not give in. And I'd often sing to that hateful thing, and it harkened back with a grin till I came to the marge of Lake Labarge. And a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice. But I saw in a trice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it. I thought a bit. And I looked at my frozen chum. Then, here, said I with a sudden cry, here, here is my crematorium. <laughs> Some planks I tore from the cabin floor. And I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found was lying around, and I heaped the fuel higher. The flames just soared, and the furnace roared. Such a blaze you seldom see. <laughs> and I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal. And I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, oh, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear. But the stars came out, and they danced about ere again I ventured near. I was sick with dread. But bravely I said, I'll just take a peep inside. I guess he's cooked. It's time I looked. And then the door, the door, I opened wide. And there, there sat Sam, looking cool and calm in the heart of the furnace, the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile. You could see a mile. And he said, he said, Please close that door. It's fine in here. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and the storm. Oh, since I left Plumtree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. Yep. Yep. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was the night on the marge of Lake Labarge that I, I cremated Sam McGee. You want to hear another one? You know, kids kids really love the grizzly. And uh, there's one here that... Now, just hold on a minute. I'll find it. Hold on. Oh, boy. 
It's one of the scariest. Now, wait a minute. I'll find it. Just stick in there. I'll find it. I'll find it. Ah, yes, yes. Here we go. Oh, this, this is the kind. This is the kind that makes, I'll tell you, it'll make an atheist out of you. Here we go. Oh. Oh, get, get that, get that, get that round, get that round blues coming in there. Come on, bring it in. I took a contract to bury the body of blasphemous Bill Mackay. Wherever, whenever, or whatsoever the manner of death he die. Whether he die in the light of day or under the peak-faced moon. In cabin or dance hall, camp or dive, mucklucks or patent shoon. On velvet tundra or virgin peak by glacier, drift or draw. In muskeg hollow or canyon gloom by avalanche. Fang or claw, by battle, murder, or sudden wealth, by pestilence, hooch or lead. I swore on the book I would follow and look until I found my tombless dead. For Bill was a dainty kind of cuss, and his mind was mighty sot on a dinky patch with flowers and grass and a civilized boneyard lot. And where he died or how he died, it didn't matter a damn, as long as he had a grave with frills. And a tombstone epigram. <laughs> so I promised him. And he paid the price in good Chicheco coin. Which the same I blowed in that very night down in the old tenderloin. Then I painted a three-foot slab of pine. Here lies poor Bill Mackay. And I hung it up in my cabin. And I waited for Bill to die. Years passed by. And at last one day came a squaw with a strange story of a long, deserted line of traps way back at the Bighorn Range, of a little hut by the Great Divide where a white man, stiff and still, lying there by his lonesome self. So I figured it must be Bill. So I thought of the contract I'd made with him, and I took down from the shelf the swell black box with the silver plate he picked out for himself, and I packed it full of grub and hooch, and I slung it on the sleigh, and then I harnessed up my team of dogs, and I was off at the dawn of day. You know what it's like in the Yukon when it's 69 below? When the ice worms wriggle their purple heads through the crust of the pale blue snows. When the pine trees crack like little guns in the silence of the wood. And the icicles hang down like tusks off your parka hood. When the stovepipe smoke breaks sudden off. And the sky is weirdly lit. And the careless feel of a bit of steel burns like a red-hot spit. And the mercury is a frozen ball. And the frost fiend stalks to kill. Well, it was just like that the day that I set out to look for Bill. Oh, the hush that crushed me down on every hand as I blundered blind with a trail to find that blank and bitter land, half-gazed, dazed and crazed in the winter wild. I went on and on and on until at last there I stood before a cabin built in the side of a hill. I burst in the door, and there on the floor, frozen to death, <laughs> lay Bill. Ice, white ice, like a winding sheet sheathing each smoke-grimed wall. Ice on the stovepipe, ice on the bed, ice gleaming over all, sparkling ice on the dead man's chest, glittering ice in his hair, ice on his fingers, ice in his heart, ice in his glassy stare, hard as a log, and trussed up like a frog with his arms and legs outspread. I gazed at the coffin I brought for him, and I gazed at the gruesome dead, and at last I spoke. <laughs> Bill liked his joke. 
But still, gall darn his eyes, a man that ought to consider his mates in the way he goes and dies. Have you ever stood in an Arctic hut in the shadow of the pole with a little coffin and a grief you can't control? Have you ever sat by a frozen corpse that looks at you with a grin and that seems to say, <laughs> You may try all day, but you'll never jam me in. Well, I'm not the quitting kind. But I never felt so blue as I sat there gazing at that stiff and studying what I had to do. Then I rose. I kicked off the husky dogs that were nosing round about. And I lit a roaring fire in the stove and I started to thaw Bill out. Well, I thought, and I thought, and I thought for 13 days, but it didn't seem to do no good. His arms and his legs stuck out like pegs, as if they was made of wood. Until at last I said, Well, ain't no use. He's froze too hard to thaw. He's obstinate. He won't lie straight. So I guess I got to saw. So I sawed off poor old Bill's arms and legs, and I laid him snug and straight in the little cabin that he... The little coffin he picked himself with the dinky silver plate. And I came near night a shedding of tears. I nailed him safely down. Then I stowed him away in my Yukon sleigh, and I started back to town. So I buried him as the contract was, in a narrow grave and deep. And there he's waiting the great cleanup when the judgment's Louise head sweep. And I smoke my pipe, and I meditate in the light of the midnight sun. And sometimes I wonder if they was. I wonder sometimes if they really was. The awful things I'd done. And as I sit, and as the parson talks, expounding of the law, I often think of poor old Bill, and how hard he was to saw. Just thought you ought to know that there's another side to the story, friends. Just thought you ought to know that maybe even you are a little hard to thaw. Maybe you're even harder to saw. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow night at the limelight, friends. 10.30 until midnight. As the candle glows hot. And as the tissue paper is more exciting by the moment. As those red ribbons fly in the wind. As the Christmas tree looms higher and higher. And tragedy stalks the land. Come on, night. At the limelight. This is old one-eyed Mike here. We'll see you sometime. If you'd like to be buried, good, just come around and talk to us. 